0: Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. We had to include this as a classic episode because it's just too much fun. We got 11 reviews of it from our advisory group, and every one of them gave it 5 out of 5 for being interesting and entertaining. The only episode ever to get such a perfect score. One reviewer commented, I want so many more episodes like this. This was my favorite one so far for covering such a broad set of topics in interesting detail and hearing what someone sharp who has spent a lot of time thinking about them has to say. Also, Anders is just a pleasure to listen to. You can tell he's really excited about what he does. We dive right into the interview here because we were already in the middle of a conversation. So I'll just explain who Anders Sandberg is now. Dr. Sandberg is a senior research fellow at Oxford University's Future of Humanity Institute, where he looks at low probability, high impact risks estimating the capabilities of future technologies, and very long-range features for humanity. His background is in computer science, neuroscience, and medical engineering, and he got his PhD in computational neuroscience at Stockholm University in Sweden for work on neural network modelling of human memory. All right, without further ado, sit back and enjoy this treat of an interview. I know that uh, you're, you've got a cryonics plan, mm-hmm. right? So you're uh, hoping to, to live for a, quite a long time yourself, ideally, Do
1: you think that's an important priority that we should be focusing on now, ensuring that that people like you and me don't don't die? I think individually it's a pretty important priority. Is it important as a shared priority? Well, it depends. Uh, When you start thinking about life extension, it has one obvious implication. It's actually a very good way of saving quality adjusted life years because you're directly trying to save life years. Now, cryonics might be a relatively inefficient way of doing that. That's probably better in from the perspective of preserving your own personal identity. But given that 100,000 people die each day of age-related conditions, that seems to suggest that actually quite a lot of value at stake. So the scope of aging as a threat is tremendously important. It's also a somewhat neglected area. Because uh, for a long time, people just assumed that you can't do anything about aging. It's a law of nature. Now we're starting to understand the science behind aging. And actually, it can be modified. Actually, there are ways of doing it. But uh, a lot of people in biogerontology are very loath to actually talk about life extension or slowing aging because it sounds so much like snake oil and cl- crazy al- alchemy. So I think this is an area that is both somewhat tractable and neglected. And the scope is tremendous. So you've got your cryonics plan. Mm-hmm
0: you're saying that's not that cost effective probably because it's reasonably expensive per person it's it's not incredibly expensive but it's reasonably expensive and also probably won't work it might work but like it's it's likely not to but there's other approaches that we could extend our lives quite a lot and perhaps extend them enough that we can always stick around for long enough to get future advances that will allow us to just keep on stringing along our lives and those approaches are more like biomedical research into how do you slow down aging And that looks much more cost-effective per person.
1: Uh, I think so, yeah. So uh, when I think about cryonics, I do uh, this mental calculation that, well, what's the value of my life to me? And even if I just use a standard statistical value of life, like $7 million, and I can totally imagine that I would uh, be willing to put myself $7 million in debt in order to survive. Mm. Yeah, it would be hard to work off, but it would still be worth uh, being alive for doing that. Times some probability of cryonics working, and I think it's better than 5% chance of working, in which case, actually, the value of uh, cryonics is kind of big enough that I'm happy to pay uh, the life insurance that pays for my cryonics. But that's, of course, the only good for me. Maybe I'm a nice person and actually adding some value to uh, other people. I'm certainly hoping so. But uh, it still seems to be relatively con- conceited to argue that, oh, I'm that worth so much that it's cost-effective keeping me alive.
0: Yeah. Rather than just funding new education for new people or something like
1: that. Exactly. So that is actually an interesting philosophical argument about life extension. Why do we want to have current humans alive long into the future when we could just as easily replace them with other humans? And I think uh, from a kind of direct uh, experience point of view that the sheer value of being alive, there is not much difference here. However, we lose a lot of things when people die. Life experiences are gone. gone. Uh, all that human capital that's been uh, very slowly amassed, some in some cases, even wisdom has been learned through a lifetime. Not always, but often enough. A lot of things are getting lost when people get older. Uh, not just in the sense that people eventually die, but there is a long period of decline where you might actually have a lot of knowledge and experience, but you don't have the energy to use it. So you have uh, old people who actually know important things, but they can't work on making them real.
0: And I suppose uh, even before people die or get uh, so sick that they can't work anymore, you know, people reach kind of a peak perhaps of wisdom around Mm -hmm. 60. And at that point, the extra wisdom (laughs) that they're accumulating each year is outweighed by the brain kind of decaying and forgetting old things that they've learned. So that's kind of when you're perhaps most wise and then you start going back down again. But we can prevent that and just allow ourselves to become wiser and wiser almost indefinitely.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it might be that eventually it levels off. Uh, it might be that eventually a human brain cannot hold an arbitrary amount of information, so you will start forgetting something. Yeah.
0: But, but we don't seem to be at that limit yet.
1: No, not really. We, we certainly haven't seen anybody having the problem of memory full. Mm-hmm. There are some people who got this tremendous autobiographical memory, both kind of paralyzing because they have a hard time generalizing. It's almost like Borges' uh, short story Fuentes, the Memorias, uh, but these people actually exist for real. But even they don't run out of memory. Our brains have a tremendous capacity. So it's
0: actually quite, quite amazing. Because you would think, well, there's just only so many you know, images and so many mm. sounds and so on that the brain can store as a memory. But uh, apparently mm. it's, it's, it's a very large amount.
1: Yeah. And part of the secret is, of course, we actually don't store it photographically. It's not like uh, a videotape, but rather we have a representation. And even the people with this super autobiographical memory, they actually don't exactly remember things as they truly were, but make abstractions. Yeah. So, you, so, so it's more like we remember some words that describe
0: it and then our brain regenerates it from the description.
1: Yeah. Uh, And in most of us, of course, uh, we do an enormous amount of regeneration, which is also why you shouldn't trust your own memory very much, because, yeah, that's an interpretation of what happened, but it's not actually what happened. Mm. Uh, This is why witness testimony is so problematic in court. It's very compelling because it's a person telling a story, but it also has relatively little to do with what actually transpired. Yeah.
0: Okay. So let's pick mm-hmm. up from that. Um, You're saying that there's there's benefits from extending
1: people's lives and preventing aging, and that um, you'd have wiser people sticking around longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just wise, also productive people, people with skills, and people able to combine different careers. I think it's quite important uh, to have different experiences because that enriches you the way you can solve problems. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's only been working on one kind of task all his life is not going to be very flexible when in, uh, interesting things happen. You want to have different kinds of experience and you might not even know what kind of experience will turn out to be useful. But typically, there is a multiplicative effect when you can combine some social skills, some uh, scientific skills, some uh, economic skills over time. And for that, you need a lot of time. It's not like you can just go to school and learn it all and then make use of it.
0: Okay, but is this a top priority? I guess you're at the Future of Humanity Institute. In in your view, I imagine there's a significant risk that we're going to go extinct. Um, that you know we could have a nuclear war, could have a pandemic, could invent some new technology that's very dangerous. You're particularly worried about artificial intelligence, I guess. How much? How many resources should we be putting into into life extension?
1: Well, to some extent, of course, uh, it's more about a matter of how do you allocate resources into already existing uh, sets of resources. So right now, for example, the World Health Organization is thinking about its priorities uh, 2019 and onward, and uh, they're actually probably making a big mistake by not making aging a big priority mm-hmm. because it's responsible for uh, almost half of the lost uh, life years, and, uh, From even if you disregard aging per se, just care about uh, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, Mm. uh, diabetes, cancers. Aging is a root cause for many of these ones. And uh, you need to, if you just say, we want to fix these diseases, we don't really want to extend life. Well, doing something about the aging process is actually probably the most effective way of doing that. It's of course tougher than uh, fixing individual aspects of cancer or diabetes, but it probably has a bigger long term payoff. Now, in the big picture, would would I say let's take some existential risk money and move over to life extension or vice versa? And I think that is probably, I think uh, right now existential risk might actually be more important in the large. However, we actually have quite a lot of misallocation of our health budgets. Mm. Right now, we're looking quite a lot at symptoms. The American Institute of Aging is doing a lot of tremendous uh, research about the diseases caused by aging and relatively little about the root cause of aging. Mm -hmm. Intervening against aging is starting to work really well in the lab. Mm -hmm. There are some very interesting work on the hallmarks of aging, the kind of fundamental biochemical and biophysical processes underlying it. And we even know ways of intervening in most of them. In many cases, of course, moving that out of theory theory in the lab into the clinic is going to take a long while. But it seems to be a worthwhile thing to do, especially given that we have various demographic problems. We're getting an older population, which means that if we have a large older population that is also suffering from a lot of chronic disease, that's a tremendous amount of pain, lost opportunity and cost for society. So I do think that this needs to be a way higher priority. I do think the correlated risks from existential risk probably trump that, Mm. but when we get into issues of health and economic development, we probably want to push much more into slowing down aging.
0: Okay, so we shouldn't fire you and take your salary to fund uh, anti-aging research, but maybe we should divert a few percent or ten percent of our healthcare budget towards anti-aging research in the immediate term, that might be bad for people's health because the research is going to take a while to mm. pay dividends and they'll have a smaller budget. But pretty quickly, you think, mm. that the returns from that research would be so high that within 10 years' time, even though the, the budget for directly providing healthcare mm. is lower, would still be better off because it would have learned how to, how to prevent aging and people would, in, would have far fewer diseases
1: to treat at that point. Exactly. It's very much a long-term investment. And- you also get this very nice spin-off effect if people who are older are healthier well they're of course more productive citizens they're paying more taxes they're not costing as much by being in the hospital so you actually get what the researcher called the longevity dividend you actually get quite a lot of economic value to society this way this is a bit like uh, trying to reduce parasite burden uh, and improve schooling in developing countries once the kids actually get better brain development and the get better information to the brain, they help the local economic growth rate quite a bit. And that has a lot of positive knock-on effects. You want to get these positive feedback loops going. So what about the possibility
0: that life extension would, would actually be bad for society as a whole? And I've heard a bunch of different theories for this, so some that I, that I don't uh, agree with that much, but, but some that seem, that seem plausible. One thing is, in the past, very often bad governments, or authoritarian governments, have ended when the leader of the country dies. Because then there's kind of a reshuffling of who might be powerful, and you potentially get a transition to democracy just by increasing the variability of the outcome. If Kim Jong-un could live basically indefinitely, then it seems like North Korea's prospects are much worse, because he'll just be able to remain in power uh, almost indefinitely, uh, and he's not going to die, and there's not going to be any period of turbulence during which things could improve. Have you thought about that issue?
1: Uh, actually, I have. So I've been playing around with a little statistical model of what is the role of aging in getting rid of bad political leaders. And it actually turns out that political science people have done lovely databases of political leaders, and uh, you can get indices, so you can even measure the ones that are most, most authoritarian. And then you can do a statistical model. Uh, Cox proportional hazards model for those who are interested to actually see the role of age in changing the probability of losing power and it turns out that we can use this to model a world where ne, these leaders don't age and on average they ne, are in power four more years is that all that is all but how, how long was the average tenure to begin with well, the average time, is t- unfortunately, tends to be something like 12 years or more. Uh, so it increases so- it by a third on average. But mm. because it's only 12 years to begin with, it's not so bad. Mm. Uh, so if you're a young dictator, you just come into power. At first, you have a very high risk of losing power very quickly because you have a lot of enemies around. So typically, the hazard is high at the start. And then they tend to decline because, well, authoritarian rulers get rid of their competitors. And then it stays relatively low and then slowly goes up over time. And part of that increases, of course, due to aging. Now, the interesting thing here is why do people lose power? Well, it turns out that uh, being so old that you can't hold on to power is a relatively rare thing. Relatively few dictators actually die at home in bed. In fact, most of them fall prey to the other scary people they surround themselves with. In that picture of the new junta in the country, the other people in sunglasses around El Presidente, they are the ones to look out for because they would be dictators. They have a lot of power and eventually they might get fed up on waiting. So if nobody were aging, I don't think the dictatorships would be in a change that much. In fact... If we want to think about negative effects of life, etc., I think this might have a much bigger effect, for example, in academia. (laughs) After all, the professor, if the professor is never really getting older, it's just getting more and more skilled, both in uh, maybe education and even more in academic intrigue, they're just going to hold on forever. There is this uh, poorly principle that maybe science advances one funeral at a time. It's debated. There have been attempts of actually investigating it. And uh, the conclusion is somewhat mixed. Sometimes uh, revolutions actually do sweep academia without replacing people. In some cases, it does seem to be generational. But we can certainly imagine many institutions where it would be relatively easy to hold on to power indefinitely. But this is a very foreseeable problem. And I think the solution is also a rather simple term limit. Term limits, yeah. uh, because in my di- the dictator data, I, of course, also had political leaders from non-dictatorial countries. And they, of course, generally stay in power for one term or maybe two terms if they're really successful, and then they disappear. And we might want to have term limits for jobs. Maybe you're not allowed to have the same job for more than a century. Mm -hmm. Then it's time for somebody else to try
0: Yeah, so looking even more broadly, what if we managed to extend people's lives but not ensure that they didn't become, say, very conservative with age? You could imagine that everyone's living 300 years and that means that their beliefs are quite crystallized and they're not very open to new ideas as they've gotten older. Do you think that's a risk that society could end up being a bit sclerotic because so many people are very old and have very established views and are unwilling
1: to change them? Maybe, but I think it's worth investigating. In fact, you can compare societies with different age distribution and try to see, do they seem to be sclerotic? And uh, I don't think uh, we see very much. If you look at Northern Europe, uh, where people are certainly living for a long time, yeah, it's maybe a bit conservative compared to some African nations. But in many cases, I think those African nations seem to be almost more sclerotic in the outlook on and uh, how things could change. So it has more to do with culture. And this, uh, I think, is a reason for hope. So just a personal anecdote. So my uh, grandmother, she's now uh, 107 years old. Uh, I, when I got married, I was a bit concerned. What do I tell her? After all, I'm marrying a guy. And uh, her reaction was, of course, oh, well, it's modern times. Mm. Uh, Having a political discussion with her is really weird because she outlived the Soviet Union. She was born before it and it fell. And uh, her views on the Swedish educational system were about the debates in the 50s and 60s. Yet she's reading the newspaper, and although she's conservative by modern standards, she's quite willing to argue. So the scleroticness here might not be coming from age. And in fact, if you have a long-lived population, you might actually have a benefit of being a bit cautious and slow-moving. You have time. You might actually not need to change many things quickly. It's really only the areas where you need quick decisions. You might be worried that older people are worse at making quick decisions. But part of that might also be that right now, our intuition about old people are biologically old people who actually have a slow conduction velocity of their nerves. They actually do react not quite as quickly as young people. But in a world with life extension, they're presumably also going to be pretty quick on the uptake. And they're just going to have a lot of experience. So, I'm not super worried about this picture of a sclerotized society. I think it has much more to do with how you build your institutions. And I think we should be aware of this risk. But even with our current lifespans, we want to be aware of this risk. We want to construct institutions that can update fast enough. We have already have trouble with institutions for regulating technology and economics, which are changing much faster. And that's without people being extremely long lived. The real problem is that the political decision makers have no idea about that Internet thing and what people are doing in the biotech lab.
0: I actually uh, heard about a study of age and political identification in, in the United Kingdom uh, in, in recent times, and they found that people's political views were in flux when they were young and then were stable during middle mm-hmm. age. But actually became more flexible again and changed more quickly when people after people retired. Mm-hmm. And initially, the researchers thought, "Oh, probably this is because those people are suffering cognitive decline and they're, and they're becoming confused and it's it's hard for them even to remember what their stable views have been." But apparently, that wasn't the issue. They saw, "Is it the case that people who are getting you know some some kind of early stages of dementia were more likely to change their political views?" But that wasn't the case at all. So it's yeah, it, it it's a it's a somewhat surprising result, mm-hmm. counterintuitive result that uh, people as they get older might even be more open to to changing Mm -hmm. ideas but it could be an issue with uh, leaving the workforce allows you to Mm -hmm. maybe spend more time thinking about these things again you know there's a bunch of different hypotheses you could have but uh... Uh,
1: i think part of it might also be vested interest because if you're part of a workforce you have an identity Mm -hmm. that might be relatively stable Uh, Now, when you're retired, you get to define your identity in a different way. And it might be that a long-lived population will both have to reinvent themselves a number of times. I think you actually need to do that in order to survive as a person in a really long, indefinite time. But also the interest you might have might drive you in different directions. So one possible nightmare scenario is, of course, that you get the grey block. You have a lot of old people who are voting for things that are good for them, making sure that their retirement funding is really yeah. solid. But who so needs those every, youngsters? So everyone who's young and middle-aged just
0: gets taxed at 80% to fund the old people having a, you know, st- having a great time.
1: Yeah, uh, that is the nightmare scenario. And uh, it's also pretty obvious that that's probably not going to be stable for long before, uh, because you might actually get that revolution. But you might also have this interesting thing that we want to construct a system that actually encourage young people to do something. So once upon a time, a young person who couldn't find a job could migrate and could go somewhere else. Or later on, could get into one of those newfangled businesses that nobody knew anything about, whether that was newspapers or making an internet startup. In a world with life extension, of course, the old timers are probably going to be just as good at making internet startups or quantum mechanic startups or whatever it is in the future as the young ones. They're just going to have more experience and more capital. But they might also have more vested interests, more social links mm. in their current circumstances. So it might be relevant for them to fund the youngsters starting up new stuff. So there is a very interesting problem about how you transfer intergenerational wealth and influence. And we need to work on that. But... Again, life extension is just going to amplify an issue that already exists. Once upon a time, by the point your parents died and you inherited the farm, you were old enough to handle the farm. Today, it's going to be about your retirement age, which means that actually this gap between generations is becoming very unstable.
0: I imagine that a lot of people who are listening to this conversation for the last 10 minutes about life extension would be very skeptical that in practice very much can be done in medicine or through scientific research to extend people's lives beyond, you know, maybe 80 or 80 or 90 do you want to say anything to try to convince them otherwise that this is actually something that, that we might be able to do you know, within our lifetimes?
1: Well, but the, the tricky part here is within our lifetime. So most of the listeners will have several decades ahead of them, at the very least. Decades in biomedicine is an enormously long time. So when I got interested in life extension seriously back in the 90s and started reading up books – The general scientific view was, well, there is aging, we don't fully understand what's causing it, and we don't really know how to modify it except by a few interventions like caloric restriction and a few interesting uh, lab experiments. And then that changed in only a few years. Cynthia Kenyon demonstrated that through a few genetic modifications, nematode worms could live uh, several times longer. And then we found a lot, lot of other methods of making mice live longer. And we started to the biomedicine of uh, aging itself. Uh, we actually developed within about 10, 15 years, a lot of understanding, which is still very far away from actually producing a good anti-aging pill or anything like that. But the sheer amount of change in the, in the scientific understanding is tremendous. And now you can't find anybody who understands bio who says that aging is impossible to change because people are regularly doing that in standard experiments. The real question is, can we change it in a medically useful way? And now you're getting into transitional uh, research, and that is much harder. Turning those early results into something that you can actually buy at the pharma store or, or uh, get as a treatment at a hospital, that's quite often much trickier and much harder to predict. Is that so, because you get side effects? Side effects, uh, you might have issues about delivery. You might have issues about how to actually uh, put it in the right way. You can also have serendipitous discovery. So right now, one of the hot discussions is about the anti-diabetes drug metformin. So this is a standard drug. It's on VHO's list of essential medications uh, and uh, kind of, it's very safe. It's been used against type 2 diabetes for a long time. Uh, it's both useful against diabetes itself and kind of mildly preventative. And then people started noticing that actually the patients that got this seem to be living longer, not just... And the people who didn't get the drug, but even some healthy controls of the same age. That's kind of weird that you get less cancer and cardiovascular disease. So now people are starting a trial to actually investigate whether metformin could be something that reduces age-related diseases. This is not an anti-aging drug per se, uh, but it seems to slow down some processes somewhat related to aging. This is a drug that is kind of well-tolerated, safe and widely used. There might be quite a lot of other things like that. Mm. So in the lab, we have a lot of really interesting, promising things. The problem is, of course, bringing something from the lab into practice is very tricky. We had various promising interventions against cancer that never got anywhere. When I was young, people were talking about the interferon that's a great solution. And then it turned out that actually it wasn't very easy to do. But when we found various antibody therapies that are really, really big, but they were total surprises because back in the 80s, that technology wasn't even conceivable. And now, well, now you can do it fairly easily and make some very expensive medications. The next step might be to turn them from expensive medication to very cheap medications. Which again has less to do with science and much more with economics, patents and industrial production and how you set up healthcare systems. So, my argument is that yeah, over the past 20 years, uh, the, the, the idea of slowing aging has gone from total crazy stuff uh, no serious mainstream researcher would touch, to mm, you that might be phrasing it a bit radically. But if you look at the hallmarks of aging paper, you find interventions against the different hallmarks. And it actually starts to look more and more like biomedicine is uh, on the track of figuring out way of affecting aging. An interesting thing is, if you have a condition
0: that is very likely to cause your death, then health authorities will often allow lower safety testing of drugs. So if you have, you know, last ditch efforts to save someone from cancer, uh, then you're, that you're permitted to take drugs that would be regarded as not safe enough for someone who is healthy to take, uh, you know, just as kind of preventative medicine. I guess... In a sense, we're all dying uh, all the time. And people who are close to the end of life because of – or probably close to the end of life because of aging, maybe we just shouldn't worry too much about the safety of these drugs because the alternative is that they're going to die pretty soon anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, So if you're young, it's probably a stupid idea to take an experimental drug. Uh, If you're getting to be middle-aged like me, now at least I'm seriously considering maybe I should be taking metformin. Uh, It seems to be safe enough and I don't have any uh, kidney conditions that would be bad for If I were in my 60s, now I might actually say, wait a minute, my mortality rate is starting to pick up. Maybe I should actually try rapamycin or even the more radical senolytics. It's still a risk. But if I'm in my 60s, I'm already taking a risk every day by being alive. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I do think that we might want to do these uh, experimental interventions. Generally, when thinking about human enhancement, my view is that we're doing too little of it. And we're also uh, doing it in the wrong way, in the sense that individuals are kind of uh, ignoring rules and doing it privately without sharing the information. And that is the real problem. We could learn so much if we actually got the data from the people who were trying enhancement. We don't know, for example, whether students who take cognitive enhancement drugs actually get better grades. That would be really useful to know. It wouldn't surprise me to find out that uh, many of these drugs actually don't help grades and actually don't help learning very well in the way they're being used. But we can't even find out because nobody has dared to do the survey. Mm -hmm. Similarly, for uh, an anti-aging, it might actually be a very smart idea to allow trials, allow people to experiment, but uh, on the condition that they also allow themselves to be monitored so we get data about what works, what doesn't work. Overall, I think our society has ended up in the wrong kind of risk minimization. So the idea is, let's make sure nobody does anything harmful. But that also means that we're not learning anything, so we can't actually do the right thing or avoid the harmful things, because uh, a lot of activities we're doing are harmful, but we're not even measuring how much harm we're getting.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm planning to start taking uh, metformin in my 40s. And I'll, I'll put mm. up a link to an, an analysis that looks at the literature on the effects that it has and estimates the pros and cons and think uh, suggests that the optimal time to start taking it is in your 40s. Because before mm. that, the, the irritation of taking it outweighs any benefit. But after that point, it seems worth it.
1: Yeah. And I think we can continue that analysis for many other things. So there might be some things that you should never try until you kind of 10 minutes uh, until you're croaking. (laughs) Other things that, yes, this is well uh, tested enough that uh, you might want to do it. Mm. But I think we should also pay back to society by sharing our data. Mm. And that might need to change the rules of how we do medical trials. We might need more observational trials.
0: Yeah, years ago I um, did a bit of an analysis of the best supplements to take if you're in your 20s, which I think is still reasonably good. Uh, there's not there's been some new research which has changed it a bit, but the, the recommendations seem fairly solid five years on, so I'll stick up a link, a link to that as well. Uh, but yeah, I'd be very interested to know what drugs should you try on the day before your death, I guess. <laughs> I suppose heroin uh, is the one that most people are trying at that time but. well
1: if you just want to maximize the amount of pleasure over the time you got left well if nothing else yeah that might be a, Morphine, a good, yeah. good way to go there's a whole bunch of other papers that you've written we've, we've done quite deep dives into into
0: these previous ones but maybe let's let's get through some of them and you can just explain uh, the points that you were making in them a common argument that i hear when i say that i'm concerned about nuclear war is it's been about 70 years since we invented nuclear weapons and there hasn't been a hasn't been a war yet so that suggests that the that the risk of a nuclear catastrophe is is pretty low. Uh, But you've written a paper, or you are involved in a paper called The Anthropic Shadow, Observation Selection Effects and Human Extinction Risks, that says maybe that argument's not quite as strong as it seems.
1: Mm. What's the argument there? So uh, we can can start with big asteroid impacts instead. So imagine that a giant asteroid had hit the Earth in the past and wiped out all life. The Earth is just a molten mass. What's the probability of us uh, observing this? And the answer is, of course, zero, because we would never evolve on a planet that was a molten globe of lava. We can only show up on a planet that actually has a surviving biosphere. So if the universe was a really dangerous place where most planets were being hit by giant asteroids every year, some planets would be very, very lucky in an infinite universe, and they would be the only ones that have observers. So our existence is actually causing a bias, and this is what I call an anthropic shadow. So if you look at asteroid impacts, like a big mass extinction one probably precludes intelligent life from emerging over the past few million years after the impact because the ecosystems are recovering. There is a lot of evolution happening, but it's probably not likely that you get intelligence during that time. So that means that we shouldn't expect to have found a giant meteor impact very recently. They can only be very far away in historically. Similarly for supervolcanoes, if you have a supervolcanic eruption that causes a climate disaster and makes most populations small, you should not expect yourself to be close to that. In fact, you should expect most of them to be fairly far uh, into the past. So this means that the record of meteor impacts and supervolcanic eruptions is going to be a bit misleading when you look at it, because your existence is actually influenced by the past uh, situation. You actually get an observer selection effect. This is a bit like uh, billionaires. If you have a club of billionaires and ask them to think about uh, the decisions that uh, led them to become billionaires, they're going to have a tremendously biased story about how we ended up there, because in many cases it was pure luck. But they will have another story uh, because they are selected for having been successful. The unsuccessful billionaires, the people who never became billionaires, who lost all the money before joining the club, are not the ones being asked. We see the same thing with hedge funds. Most hedge funds you hear about are doing better than the market because the ones that don't do better than the market quietly disappear from the prospectus and nobody talks about them. Now, this has some disturbing consequences for nuclear war. 70 years of nuclear peace means that, uh, well, maybe the world is really safe. Maybe actually the the political decision makers are very sane and the safeguards are really good. Or it might just be that we're one of the few planets where nuclear weapons exist that has been really, really lucky and uh, have some surviving observers. So my paper is about the question, can we tell whether we live in a safe world or a risky world? So if you do the calculation just based on the idea that there is some probability per year of a nuclear war, and it's between zero and one. And the first year after getting nuclear weapon, uh, we have a uniform distribution. And then we don't have a nuclear war, so we can adjust that distribution. And every year we observe peace, we will get a new and a posterior distribution. And that way we can make a rough calculation which suggests that the risk per year right now is between 0.1 and 1%, which is disturbingly large. How much, sorry, say it again? Between 0.1% and 1%. Okay, per so year. that's, wow. yeah, yeah that, that depends a bit on whether you want the mean or median of a probability distribution. Uh, obviously, it can't be 50% in this simple model because that's ridiculously unlikely that you would uh, get 50 heads when, if you flip a coin. But still, this doesn't take into account the fact that if there had been a nuclear war, we wouldn't be doing this podcast. I wouldn't be writing that paper. So the question is, can we analyze uh, this bias? And one way of doing that is to look at near misses. So the most famous near miss was 1983, when on September 26, when Stanislav Petrov did his heroic non-action of not launching a nuclear war. So the systems in the Soviet anti-missile defense were telling him that the Americans have launched a preemptive attack. And he was kind of expected to confirm that and make the call that would most likely trigger a retaliatory strike. He didn't, and we're here thanks to that. But when you start looking for these near misses, you get a horrifyingly long list. In some cases, very ridiculous. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, besides the most well-published ones, there was one where an animal, a bear, was climbing a fence outside a military base near Winnipeg. That fence had an alarm, and it was connected to the nearby Air Force Base, and it was misconnected to the General Scramble Alarm. This was right during the Cuban Missile Crisis, suddenly the alarm goes off and the bomber pilots all know obviously what's going to happen, so they're rushing to the planes and trying to get up in the air just because an animal tried to climb a fence. Fortunately, Somebody, and I really wish we knew his name so we could name a, a room uh, after him uh, around here, realized what was wrong, uh, rushed into a jeep and drove out uh, to the, the starting strip and kind of blocked uh, the planes from the lifting. So you have these near misses, sometimes technical, satellites uh, claiming things or, or the computer tapes making uh, the, the NORAD computer see a missile launch, sometimes human uh, misde- uh, decisions. So now if we live in a very dangerous world, should we expect to see a lot of near misses? or a few of them. And I do a mathematical model, and the details are maybe a bit too boring to bring up in a podcast, but basically I have a Markov chain model. And if there is a state that if you get in there, you're dead and you can never observe anything leading up to that, you're going to get a bias. Essentially, it's going to have a weird effect of deflecting states away from dangerous states. So now we can make a plot of when did these near misses happen and how many nuclear missiles could have been launched. And fortunately, it seems that there is not a very strong effect. It seems that actually the nuclear system is relatively stable. That doesn't necessarily mean it's safe at all. In fact, it's kind of disturbing how many uh, problems have been on different levels and how irrational some of the actors with nuclear weapons are. So it certainly isn't uh, implying that we're totally safe. But it does show that this effect, this anthropic selection effect, is relatively mild, which is maybe a bit sad for me because I want to have a cool paper to publish. But as my co-author pointed out, well, that's kind of good news for mankind. Yeah. The original risk was 0.1%
0: uh, percent to 1% a year. Mm. When, when you adjust for this anthropic shadow effect, uh, what,
1: what do you think it is? Is it twice as high? Or? I think uh, it's probably not even twice as high. I oh. think it's still on that order. So saying that it's one chance in a thousand to one chance in a hundred per year sounds like it's not very big but of course nobody would get on an airplane if we were told that well there's one chance in a hundred that this flight will crash so it's still disturbingly large Uh, I think most political decision makers would also say "Yeah, yeah, yeah we wouldn't allow it to be that large on our watch but from an outside perspective actually it is problematic we have created an infrastructure of destruction which is tremendously dangerous and we have a big trouble dismantling so just to be clear you're saying there's a
0: lot of near misses but that hasn't updated you very much in favor of thinking that the risk is very high that that's the reverse kind of of what i expected yeah explain the reasoning there
1: Mm. so imagine a world that has a lot of nuclear warheads so if there is a nuclear war it's guaranteed to wipe out humanity and then you compare that to a world where there is a few warheads so if there is a nuclear war the risk is relatively small now In the first dangerous world, you would have a very strong deflection. Even getting close to the state of nuclear war would be strongly disfavored because most histories close uh, uh, to nuclear war end up with no observers left at all. In the second one, you get a much weaker effect. And now over time, you can plot when the near misses happened and the number of nuclear warheads. And you actually see that uh, they don't behave as uh, strongly as you would expect. If uh, there was a very strong entropic effect, you would expect uh, very few near misses during the height of the Cold War. Mm. And in fact, you see roughly the opposite. So this is weirdly reassuring. In some sense, the, the Petrov incident implies that we're slightly safer about nuclear war.
0: And is there any way of making that intuitive? so we get a near miss and it doesn't happen so is then the logic that the final step must be very rare that in fact even when you get a near miss like just people refuse to launch anyway
1: yeah uh, th- i think that's a good uh, way of looking at it but this is of course one of those weird anthropic arguments and I think the probability of us making a mistake in this kind of argument is tremendously high. Mm. This is a very weak update. This is not something one should be basing too much on. I certainly wouldn't want to bring this over to Geneva for some disarmament talks. I don't think it would convince anybody. I think the important part is, however, to understand that the, the dynamics of the near misses is already saying quite a lot of interesting things. Mm. We do see that uh, mistakes are being done in this complex technical system and propagating frighteningly close to an individual human being able to decide whether to press a button. And that in itself, that fact ought to make decision makers aware that mm, we might want to update this and make it safer.
0: Okay, well, I'll put up a link to that paper, and I might have to have a read of it again to to fully understand it. Um, But uh, listeners can do that too if they're Mm -hmm. interested.
1: Another paper or
0: another idea that's come out of the Future of Humanity Institute is the unilateralist's curse. Mm -hmm. Do you want to explain the the concept
1: then? So the most common form of unilateralist curse is when you have a group uh, that has some shared secret. And the question is, should you reveal this secret? And it's enough that one individual tells the world about it, then it's out for good or ill. Now, this might also apply, of course, for technologies. It might be, should I release this genetically modified organism or maybe this gene drive to wipe out the malaria mosquito? And it's not entirely clear, of course, whether this is a good or a bad thing. So I might do my evaluation and do it if I think it's a good thing. And if it's enough that one individual thinks it's a good thing for it to happen. Now, if it's actually a bad idea to reveal the secret or release the mosquito or do geoengineering, then, of course, a rational agent will not do it. Except, of course, that sometimes we do make mistakes. So even if all agents are trying to be rational and trying to do the right thing, the more agents you have, the more likely it is that somebody is going to be that guy. So this leads to this problem that in many situations, you have a large number of agents that can't communicate and coordinate with each other, but they might do some action that affects the world. And this, on average, would happen much more often than we would wish it to happen. So perhaps a case of this that might actually arise for, for listeners would be, imagine that you
0: have an idea, and it's not that difficult an idea to come up with. It's the kind of idea that you think many people have probably independently come up with. But then you look and you find that no one's written it up. Should you write it up yourself? One possibility here is that many people have thought of it, and they've all decided not to write up the idea because they think it would be harmful if this idea was, was spread around And so the fact that you've had an idea and that no one else has said it and it seems like it shouldn't be original is an indication to you that even if to you it seems like a good idea to publish the idea, because so many other people in a similar situation have decided against it, you should be very cautious
1: about doing so and think, well, maybe I'm wrong in thinking that it's a good idea to write this up. Exactly. So, in our paper, we argue that this situation actually leads to a kind of principle of conformity. You might actually want to be more conservative than you would like to be normally when you realize that you're in this kind of unilateralist situation. Mm -hmm. In many situations, other considerations might apply. But if your situation is like this then you might have a reason to be much more cautious. Now, this is, of course, tremendously annoying because you can't see a reason why there could be any danger, perhaps. So maybe you're just being irrationally cautious about it. So depending on what the topic is, You might also modify this. So when you do geoengineering with the atmosphere, obviously that's going to have a global effect. So uh, hopefully people will be aware that the cost of being wrong here is so big that we might want to be much more cautious. Not just more cautious uh, than if you just made it alone, but also given this knowledge that others might also be considering it. Uh, About revealing maybe a spoiler about a book or a movie, the cost might not be that big. Of course, communicating and coordinating with others is another way of solving this dilemma. You can't always do this, especially when it comes to information hazards, this could be a real problem. If your idea maybe is dangerous in some way, maybe asking other people about it is the worst thing you could do. So again, you need to understand a bit more about the situation. And in many situations, it might also be that you don't even know who your peers are. Who are the other people who could do this? So you can't even easily ask them. If you can pool the information, the joint decision can typically be much better. And in the paper, we explore various uh, more or less silly ways uh, one can improve on this. So in general, we want to build institutions that allow us to uh, have some trusted third party or some way of comparing ideas without necessarily leaking uh, some good way of making joint judgments. But if you can't do that, then sometimes you need to be more cautious. <laughs> it
0: seems almost exactly analogous to the winner's curse in auctions. Um, and that's the phenomenon where if you're auctioning off, say, a house or a company, uh, like you know, someone can buy a company that has particular prospects that are hard to estimate, when people began doing auctions of this kind, they would usually find that the winner did terribly, or so they won the company and then lost money overall because the company wasn't worth as much as they had thought. And then people figured out, well, what's going on is that a whole lot of different people have tried to estimate how much they should pay for this company. And if you win, that means you estimated the highest value, which suggests that you were incorrectly optimistic, that almost everyone else thought that it was worth less than you did. And so you're probably wrong. You're probably overestimating how good it is. And so now when you're, this kind of situation arises, people will produce their estimate of the value of the company and then bid less than that. They have to bid substantially less to avoid this winner's curse phenomenon. And then there's kind of a reflective equilibrium where everyone makes their guesses and bids a particular amount less. And then
1: on average, people pay about the right amount. Is is that a good analogy? That's a perfect analogy. In fact, we named the paper the unilateralist curse in order to riff on the winner's curse. In our case, it's more that if you think something has a certain value, uh, it's good to release the GMO or uh, do the geoengineering. You should discount that to some extent based on how many others are considering doing the same. And uh, if you're okay with somebody else getting the glory or blame uh, for doing it, of course, you might actually want to. If it's a large group, you might say, yeah, it's very likely that somebody else is going to be that guy. So if you have doubts, you should be more conservative. Yeah, I guess if you're part of a community
0: and you're thinking of launching a project and, you know, most other people in the community think that it's a bad idea, you Mm. probably shouldn't do it. I guess that's one of the lessons.
1: Yeah, Uh, which is, of course, tremendously annoying to somebody like me who's both optimistic and aware that I'm, of course, overestimating the value of a lot of things and also kind of like progress. I like doing things. I'm having this bias towards action. But sometimes we need to recognize that that is a bias that actually leads to the, the, the worse utilities than actually the, doing create, nothing. Yeah. And doing nothing in the expectation that somebody else will do it. That sounds rather bad because in many everyday situations, of course, this is why nobody is doing the dishes or cleaning up the living room because everybody's waiting for everybody else. But for dangerous things that have this unilateralist property, you actually should do it. So sometimes people shouldn't feel too
0: bad about being conformist and, and lazy. Let's move on to some uh, another topic that you've written about, which is you know natural risks of human extinction. And mm. perhaps threats that aren't so often talked about. So very often people talk about disease, they talk about, you know, artificial intelligence gone wrong, they talk about nuclear war. But what, what, what else is there? I think solar flares is one that you've mentioned.
1: Yeah, uh, so solar flares are probably not in themselves likely to wipe us out, but they could be the thing that crashes our current civilization with very bad effects. So the basic problem is that the sun occasionally has an eruption of energetic radiation and also big globs of plasma that hit Earth's magnetic field. And Earth's magnetic field will wobble as a response. Now, If you remember from physics, uh, if you have a magnetic field that changes, that induces currents in uh, conductors. And we have created this mesh of power lines across the world, which works as antennas picking up changes in Earth's magnetic field. So a big solar storm can actually induce currents that break transformers and crash the power grid. And this has historically happened uh, a few times. There was uh, a famous one in the 80s in Quebec, where a solar storm actually crashed the power grid. And in the 1800s, there was an event called the Carrington event, which back then, of course, there was no power grid, but there were some telegraph uh, lines. And they got short circuits. There were sparks flying from them, and there were auroras down to the Caribbean. Had that happened today, a lot of our power grids would have broken. And this is disturbing because electricity and energy and distribution is, of course, a single-mode failure that could crash our society. We need electricity not just to get light, uh, but also to communicate uh, in order to pay for things and in order to coordinate. So if you got widespread blackouts, that could really cause tremendous damage. And Carrington events are probably not that rare. One guess has a return time of about 150 years, and given that this happened uh, in 1859 or so, that's kind of disturbing. So we probably need to harden our power grid, and it's telling that after Hurricane Sandy, Wall Street was without power for one or two weeks. This is the richest spot on Earth. And they couldn't get a transformer to replace uh, the transformer that had been flooded by the hurricane. Because the lead time of getting transformers is really long. So we need to update our systems for this. The good news is this is not an unknown problem. Uh, various reports have pointed out that this is seriously scary. Lloyd's Emerging Risk Group have written a report uh, and telling the insurance industry that this is scary. And now hopefully the insurance industry is telling companies and uh, states that, oh, this is very scary. We ought to fix this. It's still going to take a long time because we're talking about big capital investments. But it shows that sometimes natural processes can come and really mess up our day.
0: How are they preparing for this? Are they hardening the transformers or do they have spare transformers lying around at every, uh, you know, always so that you can always just replace it after a solar flare? Uh,
1: unfortunately, spare transformers are fairly expensive uh, objects, so I don't think people are going to have that much. So it's more about setting up the power grid so you can actually have good brakes uh, and the uh, and, uh, linkage. You also want to observe the sun much more. You want to have solar observer satellites that can detect uh, a coronal mass eruption uh, early and actually make sure that uh, we react quickly. It's a bit like those safeguards you have in the Japanese high-speed trains where you have uh, the measurements of earthquakes that if they detect an earthquake, we send a message to the train that starts breaking before actually the shaking reaches the train. So we could have satellites
0: that would detect a solar flare coming towards us, and then we would shut off the power grid, basically.
1: Well, yeah, not so much shut off the power grid as putting it into a safe mode. Mm. But that might mean perhaps a temporary blackouts, which is inconvenient, but so much better than mm. getting something that could last for weeks to months. More than months,
0: I would think. I mean, if this was a global phenomenon, mm. if electricity grids went down everywhere, then you, you, we might not even have the factories functioning to, to replace mm. the parts that have been broken.
1: And that is an interesting problem. We actually don't have a very good understanding of this kind of systemic risk that happened in complex supply chains. So the insurance industry, they wish they had a good model of supply chain risk because they're doing insurance against business interruption. And they certainly have data about their payouts, but they can't actually model the causes very well. And when you think about the risks to our society, it's not always easy to detect what's important. So, for example, in the early 90s, there was a fire at a chemical company in Japan. They were manufacturing a resin that has been used to put the silicon chips inside the capsules when you make memory chips to put into computers. This resin is rather specialized. The annual production and consumption is on the order of one ton. And that factory and its uh, storage was destroyed suddenly the price of computer chips went through the roofs because uh, you couldn't actually mount them into the capsules. And nobody had ever really been thinking about that kind of resin as a very important product. So we probably have a lot of other linchpin products in our society that we don't even know about. Solar flares are kind of obvious because they affect something that is obvious uh, in the case of power grid. But there might be other things that we're very sensitive about and we need to find
0: I'll put up some links to uh, some actually really good uh, statistical analyses of of this issue of, of solar flares and how often they happen and how bad they would be. Are there any other things like this that, you know,
1: many people won't have heard of, but actually are, you know, global catastrophic risks, even if not existential risks? Well, if we look at the natural disasters, there is a wide range of disasters happening on a lot of timescales. Uh, on one hand, you have astronomical ones, which are, of course, very dramatic. So uh, the supernovas and asteroid impacts are make glorious pictures <laughs> and also uh, look like a very neat form of disaster because we have a sudden onset and you can kind of think about the consequences. But, of course, they're not very likely. It's believed that the rate of getting a mass extinction because of nearby supernovas is about one in every 100 million years or so which is not that much. And asteroids are certainly hitting us all the time, but most of them are pretty small. You have more obscure ones like gamma-ray bursts, which is essentially like supernovas, but now you get more uh, directed radiation, which means that if it's pointed right at you, you're in deep trouble over thousands of light years. But, um, of course, most of the time, they will point in some other direction. So there are some interesting theories that maybe in the past you had more supernovas and gamma bursts, and that's why we didn't get intelligent life until now, because most planets got occasionally kind of sterilized by this up until for the past few billion years, when the universe has quietened down a bit. That still means a big spread of possible ages of biospheres, though. Mm-hmm. So getting over to the geophysical risks, so, so it's worth recognizing that we're living right now in a slightly precarious interglacial. We're still in the middle of an ice age, except that the ice ages do take breaks for a few thousand years when they actually tore up. So when I was growing up, my dad, who was about as gloomy as I'm optimistic, pointed out that, Anders, you know that on average there's going to be a kilometer of ice on top of uh, this place where we live. That's kind of what an ice age is. Uh, And they pointed out that back in the 70s, uh, scientists were seriously considering that maybe the interglacial is ending and uh, we're going to see a return of an ice age. But my dad, being very good at being gloomy, also pointed out that some other new research suggested that that carbon dioxide is increasing rather rapidly, and it might actually lead to heating. So all the ice melts, and then we're going to have water up until our balcony. So we don't actually know what our effects on climate are going to do to interglacial. That is an interesting thing as a kind of long-term risk, because if we went back to an ice age, temperatures and precipitation, we would have a dramatic change in where we could live in the world now that is also a slow risk so these dramatic fast ones would be hard for us to handle because we suddenly would find that the ozone layer got wrecked by a supernova if the ice age really starts going we probably have decades or centuries to move and find some solution so that might mean that they're actually not much of a global catastrophic risk to us now they would be maybe a few centuries back because we couldn't see them coming and we wouldn't actually have much ability to handle it
0: kind of sounds like we'll be pretty lucky to make it to that stage anyway well by that, sta- by that <laughs> stage hopefully our technology w- would be much better and people would have
1: thought about this a lot more oh yeah oh yeah uh, and our ability to monitor the geosystem uh, and see where it's going is getting better all the time so while we might be complaining about the state of our climate models and the uncertainty about the decision we need to do from it and even uh, how rick it is part of the uh, software codes and lying it or we're still doing fa- fairly well about it. we're understanding some of the Big feedback loop. I think if there is any natural disaster that actually will get us, it's going to be something totally unknown. And it's worth recognizing that we have been discovering natural disasters that uh, were unthinkable from before. After all, asteroid impacts were regarded as hoaxes um, uh, up until a few uh, hundred years ago by the scientific community, because obviously there can't be rocks up in the air. Rocks are on the ground. The idea that something could fall down took a long while to actually permeate. Uh, Supervolcanoes have been known for only a few decades. And there are probably a few other risks that we're going to be surprised by. Still, I do think that most of the risk to humanity is coming from anthropogenic uh, sources rather than natural ones. (laughs)
0: Let's move on to some of the more amusing things that I've seen you writing over the last couple of years. Two years ago, you wrote, or you contributed to a paper, Should We Campaign Against Sex Robots? What did you write there?
1: So it was mostly because I was so annoyed uh, about a line of argument that the campaign against sex robots were using. So they were mirroring themselves on the campaign against killer robots, which I think is worth taking seriously. Lethal autonomous weapons are a serious issue, I think it's worth trying to figure out a way to slow down development and limit the application of them. But this campaign against sex robots was instead arguing that sex robots represent the wrong kind of relationship between people and will lead to objectification of women and children. Mm. Strangely not men. And as a gay person, I find that a bit annoying. I certainly wouldn't want a female sex robot. Mm. So... I wrote this blog post that then actually turned into a chapter in a new book about the ethics of sex robots, where I was comparing the arguments. So first, of course, we have this basic uh, issue of is this overall argument that sex robots leads to objectification of people. Is that right? And uh, I think it's wrong, but uh, it's a big, complicated debate. But I think there is another important question, and that is the difference, can you stop something useful by stopping sex robots compared to stopping killer robots? So the goal for stopping sex robots is something like objectification of people is bad if sex robots lead to more objectification, so we should stop the sex robots. But this, of course, doesn't get to what you actually want to avoid. There are other ways of making people respect each other as people better. That seems to be where you actually get the biggest bang for the buck, so to say. You want to really go and fix that. Stopping a technology that might make things work is a relatively weak way. Now, if you think about killer robots, being killed is a bad thing. We want people not to be killed. And if you stop killer robots, you at least remove that source of people getting killed. You might certainly want to stop wars in other ways, too. But killer robots are in themselves doing something that is this kind of harmful. So I think there's a fundamental difference in that. And that leads to this overall argument that if you think sex robots are wrong, you should give good arguments for that. You can imagine conservative arguments that, oh, it's non-reproductive sex, or you're having sex with something that's not of your own species, or sex is immoral. Of course, the campaign against sex robots doesn't want to do those kind of conservative arguments, but they are much more strong as a moral argument even though I think they're totally wrong, mm. uh, than this indirect objectification argument. So just to make sure that I've, that I've got this right, you're saying with the killer robots, it's the fact
0: that they're killing in itself that is bad. Whereas with sex robots, people having sex with sex robots, you and, and these campaigners don't think is wrong in itself they only think it's wrong because of the kind of secondary cultural effects that it might have, where people become less empathetic towards other real humans because they're able to mistreat robots. Perhaps, you know, something like uh, Westworld, mm. uh, that kind of phenomenon where people become uh, you know callous uh, towards others. But you're saying you should focus on that second step or you should find other ways to make people kind to one another. And it's not actually necessary to intervene with the sex robots directly because they're only one factor among many that has indirect effects on this.
1: Exactly. That's beautifully put. Uh, so one can Try to see, there are a lot of technologies that affect how we treat each other. And mm. if you say that we should be banning all the technologies that make us objectify each other, that's going to be a very, very long list of technologies. TV. Yeah, TV, uh, a lot of social media. And the problem is, of course, many of these ones also have positive effects. It's getting very, very complicated to judge. Mm. Now, in the case of killer robots, even in a just war, it's bad for a soldier to be killed. Even if he was on the wrong side of the war, it's still bad for him that somebody shoots him, regardless of whether it's a human or a robot. But if we remove the killer robots, we have removed at least some of the killing. Now, there might be arguments again for why killer robots might actually be a nice thing. There are some people saying that, oh, yes, they can be programmed to be more ethical, which I'm doubtful of. But you might also say, yeah, but they might not have human emotions that actually lead to soldiers behaving really badly so it's a more complicated discussion generally of course sex robots are a fun topic mm. uh, i was asked to give a talk to a boys school two years ago about this topic and everybody wanted to listen on it which of course gave me a great excuse not just to talk about ethics but also things about consent and what do we mean about that and How can we even tell when something is worth having emotions about and uh, can a machine give consent? It was interesting to see how the kids got very interested in rather deep philosophy that way.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that this topic is going to make it into the, um, the hook for this podcast, even though it's a fairly brief part at the end of the show. Uh,
1: well, it is a little bit like a flight paper topic because it has this eternally interesting topic, mm. sex, inside it, which is interesting on its own because we are the kind of creatures that really care about sex. Evolution has given us these properties, even, even if we then become philosophers and think that we are more important, abstract things, this meaty stuff really uh, gets us going. Maybe we need to reframe some of our other issues, like, you know, what effect would a nuclear apocalypse
0: have on sex? Or, you know, what effect would a pandemic have on mm. sex? You know, then people will actually read yeah. about this stuff. The
1: Fermi paradox in the bedroom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so just, just to jump back a moment to, to the argument, I, I'm not sure that I, that I would be completely convinced if mm. I was one of these campaigners. Because imagine that you thought the effect that sex robots would have on culture and mm. on kindness was was large, larger than, uh, you know, most of the other things that we're thinking about, like, you know, violent television mm. shows. So you think it has a particularly large effect you also think it's maybe possible to ban these preemptively in a way that it's not really possible to ban television shows now, and and perhaps you also just don't value the the enjoyment that people would get from sex robots directly uh, all that highly. Perhaps you know you just don't value pleasure, or you don't you don't think sexual pleasure is something that we should be uh, pursuing, or you just think think in fact people won't enjoy it very much, perhaps because it will damage their other relationships, which they're getting a deeper fulfillment from.
1: Yeah, uh, so, so I think one issue is that people are probably underestimating the value of a really functioning sex robot. Now, I'm also thinking people underestimate how hard it is to build the darn thing. Uh, when you start thinking about the amount of mass and how fast it has to move close to an unprotected human, it turns into a horrific engineering problem and an engineering safety problem. I'm not certain it can be resolved, actually. The, the real question is, of course, could you ha- the sheer existence of uh, sex robots actually be bad for a society. And you can certainly imagine other kinds of robots that would be bad for a society to have. I have argued that it's a bad thing to have killer robots in society. And you could imagine theft robots, robots programmed to go around stealing stuff. We would obviously be better off not having those. In that case, uh, it's also because they're directly doing something illegal. But you can, of course, imagine other legal activities that we still don't want to automate. Persuasion robots
0: that are too persuasive or something.
1: Yes. The problem is, of course, we're working very hard as a civilization to develop the persuasion robot. Mm. There is big money invested in it. Uh, fake news is a big deal. If you can automate fake news or automate the detection of fake news or automate escaping the detection of fake news, you can make a fortune. So actually, we are probably very well on the way of getting persuasion robots. That is, of course, also very scary, because this might undermine a lot of important aspects of our culture. So maybe we actually, the sex is beside the point. Maybe even the killer robots are beside the point compared to the persuasion robots. But it's also much harder to deal with, because persuasion is a subtle activity. Maybe I'm persuading everybody listening now about some subtle things using subliminal messages or my pronunciation or my philosophical views. Cut that out in post-production for the episode. Go perfect, <laughs> perfect. Yes, just yes, yes, ignore the subliminals. However, it, it's a very subtle activity. On the other hand, a sex robot or a killer robot, it's kind of obvious what we're doing. You can't be discreet, really, about uh, those activities. Mm -hmm. So they're also more easy to ring fence. It's more easy to discuss that because you could argue that, well, this is not a persuasion bot. This is an information bot which is just doing really compelling education for our children. And you might even mean it because you are persuaded that you're right and your ideology, which you subtly put into the the system, is, of course, what children need to have. So we have a lot of powerful influences of automation, and we really need to discuss and analyze them.
0: You're also skeptical that sex robots even would have a, have a negative cultural impact, right? Mm. Do you want to make the case for that briefly, and then we'll move on?
1: Yeah, I generally think that people are pretty good at nuancing their views because we are adapting new technologies for sex all the time. Basically, any new technology, people will uh, first think about the original use and the second one, how can I use this for something sexual? Mm. So printing very quickly gave rise to pornographic novels and uh, the Internet, of course, as we know, is for cats and pornography. And of course, people will be making sex robots, too. Now, how useful are they to the average person? And I think that is complicated because love and sex are a fairly complicated thing for mammals like us. Uh, I quite often argue that we can divide them into roughly three subsystems. So one is the lust system, about mating with whoever you want to mate with. And to some people, this is the primary thing. That's really what we're going for. For most people, the other two are equally important. And one is, of course, uh, attraction. You need to find somebody you actually want to be together with. That is the falling in love part. And then you have a pair bonding system, staying together. After that first infotuation, that really rushing romantic Disney song part is over, you actually need to stay together for decades perhaps to rear the kids and have a family. And these subsystems can be differently active and different people put different emphasis. Some people just have this companionable, friendly relationship, and it goes on for decades. Others are going in and out of passionate love affairs. Sex robots would just automate the fulfillment of part of the lust system. And I think many people think that, well, that's not the point, because to me, love is more about having a relationship to a person. And presumably a sex robot wouldn't be that. Once you can make a sex robot that actually is a person, now you have a really complicated moral dilemma. uh, So now you haven't solved anything, you actually added a lot of complication. However, others would say, yeah, that's great. I want uh, to be together with my wife or husband, but uh, sometimes they're not around and then it might be very nice to have sex with somebody. And given that we're very different, other people will just stare at the first person and say, what? You can't do that. We have a lot of social norms about it, a lot of religious norms, a lot of status and ideas. But these ones tend to be updated. So right now we're living in a kind of post-Tinder era where dating has become very much technological mediated in a lot of subtle ways and probably transformed in ways we're not even going to notice until a few decades down the road when people have started to notice what kind of families you build when everybody met each other on the internet rather than meeting because of friends or meeting because of other arranged marriages. Yeah. So I do think the technology here has given us a lot more freedom. It's just that we also get these weird unforeseen effects, which we're also sometimes you know, better off having. I guess I'm not
0: inclined to believe that violent television or pornography has had massive cultural effects, or at least not, not massive harmful ones, because it seems like the macro trends don't line up with that. But it could have okay. had small harmful effects mm-hmm. and maybe human like robots, the the effects could be larger because it's like it's mm-hmm. a it's a better simulacrum of, of actually mm-hmm. being a person and it could make us then, you know, it's harder for the brain to distinguish between what's what's real and what's what's fantasy. So I guess it does seem like there could be reason reason for caution here, at least uh, oh, yeah. as with oh, yeah. any technology that, you know, it, it, it could be harmful in ways that don't don't currently, see, currently seem that likely.
1: Uh, the thing I would be watching out for is if we could get supernormal stimuli that are really, really effective. Mm. So in etology, the behavior of animals is known that uh, there are some stimuli that animals are looking for, for example, in looking for partners uh, or looking for their parents that are very simple. And if you just amplify them tremendously, you get a much stronger response. The classic example is the marking on the beak of a seagull that uh, the chicks uh, are using to detect their parent. If you just take a wooden stick and add the same three, three extra markings, they're going to totally go for that instead of the actual uh, parent. And you can, of course, imagine this happening with pornography and sex spots. In fact, if you think about the average pornographic uh, actor or actress, they are kind of got rather exaggerated features. And uh, it might be exaggerated primary sexual features, but also in romance novels, it's kind of exaggerated uh, social status. And there are various things we respond to. And we're also developing this art of detecting what people respond well to and providing it to them. So one risk might be that it's not so much the sex robots themselves that are dangerous, but that we get very good at actually finding things that people really want, even if it's not tremendously bad, uh, tremendously good for them. So th- this might produce various forms of interesting new forms of addiction. After all, we're trying to do that with food. It's not Once we've gotten beyond the point of getting enough food to survive, we want to make it taste good. And now we're making it taste good, look good, and be ethical, so you really have a compelling reason to have it. If we take this to the limit for you know, food and sex and everything, we might end up in a world that is actually driving us more strongly than uh, we might uh, want, because we would be tremendously distracted. Mm. So really good-tasting food has made us overweight, and perhaps sex robots would make us... Overweight in some sexual sense. Well, uh, maybe a really good sexual means that we're not going to leave the bedroom, uh, which might have long-term effects, for example, on actual reproduction. And uh, there are those people who are worried that exposure to pornography gives people unrealistic beauty standards. You don't need to invoke pornography even because, well, most beautiful people you see on television, etc., they already are selected among the people who really look and behave well. And then we better that with a bit of computer graphics and makeup. So the end result is, of course, that we have a world of unrealistic expectations. And it's hard to be attracted to the people you actually meet in real life. Yeah. Uh, But that also suggests an interesting opening. We might want to look at the virtues of uh, actually functioning in this kind of world. What does it take to live in a media saturated world? What are the virtues you have if you're constantly surrounded by social media? Uh, How do you actually handle that? You get all this super tempting stuff. I quite often have this problem with books. I find a lot of books that are really interesting, and I only have 24 hours per day to read. So, what do I do about it? I can't read all the delightful books, and this feels tremendously frustrating. And my response is, of course, to think, yeah, but it's so much better than the alternative. A few centuries ago, it would be a big event in Oxford that a new book had arrived. Uh, Most of the time, you only had to reread the same 50 books that were in the library. Now we have an overload of books, and that's actually a good thing. We need better ways of prioritizing them. This is another reason I want life extension. My pile of unread books is growing, but eventually I will get to each of the books, even if more books are arriving. Is
0: that true in finite time, Anders? What if you, what if you, keep, you keep living and, and each year you add more books than, than
1: you can read? Well, if we only have a finite amount of time, I will eventually run out of time to read the book. So this is why proton decay is the ultimate <laughs> limit of our, my reading ambitions. In, mathematically, however, if you had infinite time, then any book would be arranged in the queue and I would eventually get to it even if authors were adding books at a faster and faster and faster rate.
0: So, so with the discussion of sex robots, we've got the hook for the episode. But let's let's talk about some other things you've written. You've talked about sleep minimization as a potentially important priority, but also something that might have unexpected uh, downsides. Uh, what have you written about that?
1: So th- this began one dreary Monday morning where I was waking up, I had to get to a meeting and I was bleary-eyed, I was thinking why do we ever stay awake? What if we could just sleep all the time? And then after five cups of espresso, as I was jumping to the office, I was thinking, why do we ever sleep? Why do we waste time with that when we can be up and about and do useful things? So that led to thinking a bit about sleep enhancement. And it's interesting that we haven't been thinking that much about sleep. We spend about a third of our lives asleep. So, If we could sleep better, that would presumably have a tremendous effect on human life. And indeed, when you think about how bad insomnia is for life quality, it seems that, yeah, we should probably be pursuing improvement in sleep quite a bit.
0: Yeah, the other thing is, if you can shorten someone's sleep needs by about an hour,
1: then you extend their life or their waking life by about three years, which is enormous. Yeah, so it seems like there's a tremendous amount of value here, but we also don't understand sleep very well. And uh, part of that is because it seems to be a really deep problem. Uh, There are loads of theories about why we sleep. And many of them uh, seem to be not enough. For example, a very popular theory is that uh, you're doing memory consolidation during sleep. Then the short-term information you learn during the day is stored temporarily in the hippocampus and then moved into permanent storage in the cortex during uh, sleep. There are other versions of other memory management things. But this doesn't explain why lab animals that are sleep deprived actually die. It's, uh, they would maybe have a memory crash, but why do we die? And it seems that sleep is also important for homeostasis. It seems to be important for getting rid of waste product from the brain. And there are a lot of other reasons, but we don't fully understand uh, sleep per se. So I have an old paper with Nick Bostrom uh, about the wisdom of nature that looks at proposed enhancements and ways of choosing between them. And uh, one way of thinking is to say, if this is such a good idea to change, why haven't nature already done it? Mm. And Quite often, the answers fall into three categories. One reason might be the trade-offs have uh, changed. So in our ancestral environment, nutrients were relatively scarce. So we couldn't have brains using more energy simply because we would starve to death. But now, nutrients are not scarce. We have too much of them instead. So actually, that enhancement might be a good idea. There might be other conditions that have not changed. And in that case, we should be careful about changing. There are other things, of course, that uh, evolution might not be able to do. We can't evolve it because of the biological limitations. You can't evolve a radio transmitter or a method of making diamond bones. In the case of diamond, the molecular bonds are too strong to be made using the kind of enzymes we have. And then, of course, sometimes human values diverge from evolutionary values. Now, if you find something that uh, is very preserved in evolution, you should suspect it's important, even if you don't understand why it's going on. And sleep seems to be one of these things. Uh, It seems that uh, actually being unconscious, even though the predators might get you you while you're asleep, is still worth having. So we don't know why really we sleep, but it seems that uh, messing with it, removing it might actually be a very bad idea. At the same time, there seems to be a high degree of value in improving sleep. At the very least, we should make sure that we can sleep well because it affects our function and health tremendously. People who sleep too much and too little generally have much higher mortality. It's unclear if that's causative. Yeah, it's a complicated issue. Depressed people sleep a lot, uh, and you can actually sometimes make them less depressed by forcing them to sleep less. Mm. They're not happy about it, but they're less depressed. Mm. They're probably more angry. (laughs) uh, They're angry but animated, I guess. Yes. Uh, And uh, similarly, of course, uh, sometimes if you have a lot of pain, you can't sleep. But if you try to control for this, it's, there still seems to be this remaining effect. But it's also hard to judge because different people have different sleep needs. Uh, some people are, uh, like me need the exact eight hours uh, per night. Uh, that's kind of my optimum. Others are very variable. Some people take pride in how little they sleep, quite often to build a personal myth about themselves. And of course, uh, there is a phase a a lot of young transhumanists uh, do when they get into university of trying polyphasic sleep. A lot of my friends, me included, have been trying this idea that, yeah, you're awake for uh, four hours, then you take a nap for uh, about an hour, and then you're awake for four hours, and that way you're active uh, throughout uh, the, the day. And this typically lasts for about one or two weeks before you realize, I actually need to have a functioning social life. And this is not compatible with being around other people who are running the normal rhythm. Now, the interesting part here to me is rather, that could we modify sleep? Yeah, we probably can. We have stimulants that can do that. We probably should find better ways of controlling sleep because actually insomnia is a really bad thing and shift work disorder is also causing a lot of accidents and trouble. But we should probably expect that it's going to be tough to optimise sleep. But I think there is a tremendous amount of value and this is a very neglected area. A third of our lives that is not being investigated properly. And I think there's plenty of room for enhancement. Just think about the pleasure of going to bed when you're really tired. That's really great. Waking up rested is also really great. The state in between. Actually, most of our dreams are fairly negative. If you wake somebody up at random and ask them about the state, you find that most of the violence is actually fairly negative, but we don't remember it much. Maybe we want to improve the state in between, too.
0: Yeah, I've heard this. I guess I don't feel like it's true of me. I feel like usually when I I wake up, my dreams are close to neutral. Mm. At least, I don't know, I don't don't feel like sleeping Mm. is unpleasant. Yeah, but p- perhaps it's just that whenever I wake up in the morning, I want to I want to continue sleeping. So uh, <laughs> it makes me it makes me perceive that I am
1: enjoying sleeping, even if I'm actually not. Yeah, I think that's true. We, our ability to perceive the sleep state itself is actually quite limited, mm. and many people also get surprised when they start comparing dreams because they have beliefs about what's possible and not possible in dreams which are utterly dissimilar. Some people say, yeah, there are no shadows in dreams, at which point others say, wait a minute, i am seeing totally a load of shadows. Others are explaining, no, no, there is no real color in dreams. Oh, I see loads of colors. Yeah, there is no smell in dreams. Oh, i experience smells. So our brains are working very differently. Dreams in general, and even the deep sleep states, which is more a rehearsal of what we did during the day, they are there, but how we function for each individual is going to be tremendously different. Some people are lucid dreamers and can kind of take over during sleep. I find it amusing to do, but it's not terribly useful. But other claim, oh, this way I can work and train and think even when I'm asleep, which sounds very effective, but also somewhat boring. Uh, let's let's do one last thing that you've written about. So, so you're in the
0: habit of making predictions each year. Is that right? So at the well, start of the year, you make predictions for the year ahead.
1: I'm trying to do it. I also found that it's surprisingly hard to find good predictions uh, to last for a year. So this year, I actually failed at doing it in uh, the first two weeks of the year. Uh, So this year, I haven't gotten the predictions because I realized after two weeks, I already kind of, now we're getting more information. Now it would be a bit unfair. Interesting.
0: Okay. Uh, But you did this last year, right? Yeah. Uh, So how did you do? Uh, Were were you overconfident, underconfident? Did you find any patterns? Uh,
1: Generally, I found that I was was a bit overconfident about the really likely stuff. A lot of um, things that I should be able to nail really well, I was a bit overconfident about. I was decently well calibrated on the kind of mid-level questions,
0: uh, which is so interesting. Is just, just for listeners, you're, you're putting probability estimates on all kinds of things happening by the end of the year. And yeah. then you can see, you know, if you said that something
1: was 50% likely, did it actually happen 50% of the time? Uh, and I think it's very useful to try to do this and mm. keep doing it so you can get a sense of how much you can trust your own predictions. Mm. Uh, Do you think it's it's changed
0: your behavior or made you better at forecasting things?
1: uh, A little bit. Uh, I think, in general, uh, it made me realize that asking the right questions might be actually much harder. Finding a good generic list of questions that I should estimate that will come true or not true within one year, that also have a clear enough prediction... That is surprisingly hard. So it's actually worthwhile learning to ask questions better. So this is a bit like evaluating uh, futurists. If you read Ray Kurzweil's predictions, how exact is he? Well, it turns out that it's quite often something that sounds like he's making a very firm prediction. But when you read it and then try to compare whether it's actually true, it's problematic. So, for example, in The Singularity is Near, he's actually predicting autonomous cars for uh, uh, this uh, time. OK, is he right? Well, we have autonomous cars. I've seen them running around California and the streets of Oxford, but they're not commercial. Is that a hit or a miss? Well, it's a matter of judgment. Mm-hmm. And it, quite often something that sounds like it was a very specific prediction actually turns out to be less specific. So besides getting calibration right, I think right. learning how to make statements is actually a surprising challenge. That
0: run ambiguous, I guess. Yeah. Everyone would agree whether they've been accomplished or not.
1: Yeah. Uh, and uh, you will probably, when you try doing this, realize that that's super hard. Actually getting people to agree on what the state of the world is, is surprisingly hard.
0: Yeah. I've uh, often tried making actually uh, monetary bets uh, with mm-hmm. people about, you know, where we disagree about what's going to happen, uh, mostly just because it's mm-hmm. it's fun. But it is often very hard to uh, yeah come up with an, an, an agreed like outcome that, that you both want to mm-hmm. uh, forecast on. Sometimes you're forced to, to rely on, you know, a third party who both of you trust to just kind of say overall who, who was right in this case. But that's, that, that's, that makes it uh, kind of difficult to, to make these mm-hmm. bets because you have got to find someone to do it and like tell them, like say what you think is going to happen in some kind of thick way so that they can appreciate your perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame. But I do think it's important. I I personally don't like betting just because I don't like betting per se, but I'm very much in favor of people making more bets on the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm very fond of scientific bets where various researchers uh, make bets about whether you find supersymmetry or a Higgs boson or something else at a certain date. Uh, some of them, of course, are kind of symbolic and almost epical. Uh, you, you have, uh, the, for example, the bet between uh, uh, Ehrlich, Ehrlich and, uh, and uh, Herbert Simon about uh, the cost of raw materials, which kind of almost symbolized uh, the battle between the ecologists and the economic cornucopians. Mm. And that one at least as the standard story goes, of course, ends with the conclusion, oh, yes, the economists are right, uh, the price of raw materials is going down. Except, of course, that had they waited 10 years more, Ehrlich would have won the bet. So yeah, the stories I, I, we tell can be quite different from reality. Yeah, I think if you look at a broader time period, then you
0: find in two-thirds of the, of the time periods that the prices went mm-hmm. down and about one-third they mm-hmm. went up. So there kind of is a somewhat... Longer term trend downwards, but it's very volatile, and mm. you can certainly have extended periods where the prices of raw materials goes up. But that that's the kind of complicated story that doesn't tend to get reported with, mm. when you have these kind of mythical events. Mm.
1: Yeah, but sometimes the mythical events are also useful to be as a starting point for the further discussion. So I do think we actually want to create more of these mythical events. Actually, making bold predictions is good. I typically like to tell journalists who wants a timeline, when will we get human-level AI or when we'll find aliens, but this is, of course, an absurd question. Actually, we can't put a good number about it. I can give arguments about it, but uh, any number is just going to be silly. Yet, sometimes it's useful to make big bold predictions, but I think You want to make them more about mechanisms rather than an exact number of when something will happen.
0: Well, uh, we haven't spoken that much about careers advice, how people Mm. could work at the Future Mm. of Humanity Institute. But uh, I'll speak to one of your colleagues, I think, in the the coming months and people who have Mm. really enjoyed this conversation and want to research these Mm. kinds of topics can can get some advice Mm. on what to study and how they could potentially end up being one of your colleagues.
1: Yeah, Uh, I think my own main advice is I'm very much of a generalist. I'm interested in everything. That is both a blessing and a curse. Uh, but it's also very useful to know a little bit of everything because that allows you to know that mm, I know where is knowledge about this problem. I can go and ask or find some textbooks and dig it out and apply it to the main thing I'm working on because it allows me to tie things together. And that is part of what we need at the Future Humanity Institute. The future is by its nature a mix of a lot of factors, which makes it naturally interdisciplinary. So you need to have somebody around who knows a little bit about uh, whether that's solid state mechanics and a little bit of economics and a little bit of philosophy, even if you're not perfect at that. So my career advice would be make sure you read the introductory textbooks on random topics you're not supposed to be studying. Read random things that you don't know what's going to be good for you, because later on, it might be much later, it could actually turn out to be useful. And typically the cost of reading at least a few introductions is not that high. My guest today has been Anders Sandberg. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Anders. Thank you. It's been delightful.
0: If you enjoyed that conversation, you'll surely also love my earlier conversation with Anders in episode 29, Anders Sandberg on three new resolutions for the Fermi paradox and how to colonize the universe. You can scroll back and find that in your podcasting app to hear another 80 minutes of everyone's favorite Swedish polymath. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.